Hello and welcome to the London School of Theology podcast. You are listening to our weekly chapel service. Today's speaker is Dr. Conrad Genf. London School of Theology. Forming disciples. Resourcing churches. Impacting society. Those of you who have had me for lectures know that whatever module title you're sitting in, you're going to hear about Acts, the subject of my PhD. And you're also going to hear about the importance, centrality, and holiness of Scripture. So when Allison asked me to preach on Scripture, I thought, yeah, this is my calling. This is what I'm meant to do. But it's inevitable that there'll be some overlap with what some of you have heard from me in class. And particular apologies to those of you who were in this year's Romans <laughs> class, because some things I said in class this year just had to be in this sermon. Apologies. <laughs> uh, another of the things a few of you may have heard me talk about before is a passage from Psalm 32. Originally, I told Allison it would be one of the texts for this morning, but then a couple of weeks ago I decided to leave it out, and then in the past week it's been in and out and in and out, and this morning I found it was in. Um, So here it is, Psalm 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or else they won't come to you. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which must be controlled by bit and bridle, or else they won't come to you. Psalm 32, 8 to 9, I love it. It's opaque at first. It took me years to get it. I'll come back to it in about 15 minutes or so, and then you'll understand. First, let's pray. I thank you, Lord God, for all your gifts. For my colleagues here whom I love. For my students here whom I love. For your word, which we love. And for being here yourself. Thank you for all your gifts, but that's the greatest. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus believed in scripture. About a third of his pages in his Bible were still blank, of course. And the whole thing was much cheaper to print because they only had to use black ink. What I'm really trying to say is, for Jesus, Scripture was the Old Testament. But they didn't call it the Old Testament, of course. But it was old. For someone walking around in Jesus' day, the main bits of the Old Testament were several hundred years old. Thousands of years old, some of it. 
but they revered it. And Jesus did too. And Jesus followed the Old Testament laws and regulations. Oh. <laughs> no, wait a minute. He didn't. All right, so here's a crazy thing. We think like Greeks. We are either or thinkers. Not every culture is like that. Hebrews were both and thinkers. Thinking in either or categories made us really, really good at Newtonian physics. But it also ensured that when we discovered the truths of quantum mechanics, we would find it utterly illogical and confusing. Light can't be both particles and waves. It has to be one or the other. But no. We're either or. But there are things in the universe that are both and. Jews were both and, and it drove Gentiles nuts. Jews had no trouble saying, my God can beat your God up with one hand tied behind his back, and your God doesn't even exist, but that's okay because mine doesn't have any hands. <laughs> Important parts of our faith defy logic because they're Hebrew both ands. Jesus, fully human and fully divine. Three persons, one God. These things defy logic the same way that quantum physics does. Jesus did both and really, really well. My favorite bit was the foot washing. Remember the story? He clothes himself like a slave. Then he comes to the disciples to perform a service that a slave would perform. Humble as can be, until Peter objects. I should do this for you, not you for me. Do you remember what humble Jesus says? You let me do this or you're out. <laughs> the slave and the boss at the same time. He is really being both. Not either or, both and. Well, Jesus is both and about scripture too. Thesis, every jot. On the one hand, Jesus' best known block of teaching is Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and in it, he is unequivocal about his regard for scripture. And you've heard it read. Don't peek ahead to the verses just beyond that yet. We'll get to them. <laughs> We'll also later have to consider what it might mean to fulfill the law and fulfill the prophets. But for now, the important thing is to notice how highly he seems to value the law, how it's eternal, and he has not come to abolish it. I don't actually know how it is that Jesus knows the scriptures so well. His family certainly wouldn't have owned a copy. Most phones in those days didn't have screens. <laughs> they wouldn't even have been able to afford one scroll. Maybe through the local synagogue? We know that in later Judaism, boys were schooled in the scriptures intensely. We're not told about it, but how he must have studied and memorized while growing up. 
because somehow he clearly knows the whole sweep of his Bible. He speaks of the creation of Adam, of the death of Abel, of the days of Noah, of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the history of Abraham, the appearance of God to Moses in the burning bush, the manna in the wilderness, the miracle of the bronze serpent, the wandering of David, the glory of Solomon, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, the story of Jonah, the martyrdom of Zechariah. From Adam to Zechariah, he knows the scripture. And those are just the direct mentions. It's also clear that he's absorbed its teaching. And when he tells stories or uses imagery, so much of it will be from what we call the Old Testament. He thinks of the end time as a banquet. Where did he get that idea? From scripture. He calls himself the bridegroom, calling on imagery from Psalms and Song of Solomon and the prophets. He calls himself the son of man, calling on Psalms and Ezekiel and especially Daniel. He refers to himself as living water from the prophets. I am, I am, I am. Before Abraham was, he is. You ask him, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? He answers from Isaiah. You ask him, Jesus, when will the world end? He quotes Daniel. You ask him, Jesus, why are we going to Jerusalem when it's so dangerous? His answer, all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Jesus refers to Scripture over and over again, to his friends, to his enemies, to Pharisees, to Sadducees, to the disciples and the merely curious. From his first sermon at Nazareth to the end of his earthly life, and beyond. Scripture is the authority to which he appeals again and again. When he enters the synagogue, all eyes fixed on him, he calls for the scroll of Isaiah, allowing those words to define his mission and identity. When challenged with questions, he would sometimes reply, well, what do you read? He asks people to compare their reactions to the reactions of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. To those who demanded a miracle, he spoke of the sign of Jonah. To the messengers from John the Baptist, he speaks of Isaiah's description of the work of the Messiah. And when the Sadducees attempt to confound him with their puzzle, he accuses them of knowing neither the power of God nor his scriptures. Those two go together for Jesus. The spiritual experience of God's power is always accompanied by knowledge and love of scripture. And not just in public, but also in private. Take the times that he is most alone. Out in the desert with no Pharisee to refute, no disciple to educate, Jesus finds himself alone, confronted with soul-searing challenge of the temptation. What does he rely on? Three times it is written. That's where he turns. That is how Satan is defeated. Again, after the Passover supper, after taking his three closest friends to pray and watching them doze off, Jesus alone with his father, wrestling with his fate, and even in this prayer, scripture, that scripture may be fulfilled. And on the cross, 
even at the moment of deepest despair and agony, Jesus' inner life is, as always, dominated by his intimate participation in Scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22. And beyond, then there's the new thing, the age to come that starts with the resurrection. When he meets the disciples on the road and they don't understand or recognize him, Jesus doesn't say, behold, a new thing. Forget the old. Instead, the first thing he does is begin with Moses and unfold all of Scripture for them. It's all there in the Scripture, almost as fully as it's all there walking with them. The Scriptures are about him. And during the 40 days when he was among them after the resurrection, did he, Dan Brown, Gnostic-like, teach them new revelation, secret esoteric teaching, new disclosures about the unseen world? You know he didn't. Instead, he says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand. <laughs> the scriptures. His public life, his private life, his life before the resurrection, his life after the resurrection, all dominated by scripture. He found it so central that not the least stroke would pass away, and he lived like that. Or did he? Thesis, every jot, antithesis, you have heard. But Jesus is both and. And so far, I've made it sound like Jesus was just bumping along a preordained railroad track laid out by the Old Testament. Even worse, you read some New Testament guys like Tom Wright, and you'll get the feeling that Jesus went around with a clipboard with a huge checklist of things he'd gotten from Isaiah, looking for opportunities to pose this way or that so that he can tick another one off the list. <laughs> I don't think it's like that at all. Jesus was not bound by scripture. I think Jesus did whatever the heck he wanted. And Isaiah and the boys somehow saw it in advance and wrote about it. That's how Jesus describes it more often than not. This is what is written about him, not this is what is written to which he must conform. Listen to him in John 5. You study the scriptures diligently because you think it's in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Wow. As important as scripture is, it's from Jesus we get life. Scripture should lead to Jesus, should lead to life. As important as scripture is to Jesus, he's saying here that he's more important than that. What a picture of humility Jesus is. <laughs> Jesus is both and about scriptures, and he ain't bound by it. And this infuriates lots of people. Imagine yourself a first century homeowner. You think your house is pretty nice. You lend it to Jesus for one of his meetings. Uh-oh. Is he grateful? Some delinquents come and tear apart the roof. And what does Jesus do? He forgives them. 
What right does he have to forgive sins committed against you? Not the least stroke of the law? And when he comes across a woman who, according to the law, should be stoned, not only doesn't he pick up a rock, he actively stops those who are going to carry out the law. He works on the Sabbath, and he violates all kinds of laws about cleanness. We moderns love to make a distinction between what we call the moral law and the ritual law, but of course the Old Testament makes no such distinction, and neither is Jesus. Not the least stroke of a pen of the whole law is what he says he's in favor of, but he also acts and teaches against stuff like the Sabbath and stuff like divorce. And so it is that in the same block of teaching, the same block of teaching that speaks so highly of the law, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, the verses following the ones that we read out loud do the opposite. Jesus talks about several Old Testament injunctions with the formula, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you could almost turn this into the Bible says X, but Jesus says Y. That's your either-or brain tricking you. How the heck can he claim to uphold the sacred law on the one hand, then contradict the law? And this isn't like Jesus is pro-law in Luke's gospel and anti-law in John's gospel. This happens in the space of one chapter of Matthew. And the pattern is repeated six times, right? You've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, but I tell you that anybody is angry who will be subject to judgment. And you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you don't even look lustfully. And divorce and oaths and an eye for an eye and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The law says one thing, Jesus says another. He doesn't enforce the law, he violates the law, he teaches contrary to the law. Synthesis. Thesis every jot, antithesis, you have heard it said, synthesis, fulfill does not equal abolish. Jesus is, you see, both and. The scriptures are all important. Nothing can be taken away from them. But at the same time, he's happy to apparently break some commandments, commandments ignore the punishments required for others, and explain where he thinks the law needs correcting, updating, expanding? Because, no, not exactly. It's not mere self-contradiction. That is our either-or brains objecting. Jesus is both and, and it does actually make sense when you think about it rightly. Jesus, like any good exegete, is not looking at only the words in Scripture but the context and trying to get beyond the surface to the intentions behind the words. And he's pretty good at getting to the intentions behind the words that he wrote. <laughs> when you do that, you realize that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was not actually a prescription for how revenge must be taken. It's not a command. It is not, if someone knocks out your tooth, you are required to knock out theirs. The context and original intention is of limiting revenge, not 
promoting revenge. The saying is not aimed at the one-eyed man who is inclined to be gracious and forgiving, but at the one who decides to kill the one who injured him. Not, you must take this revenge, but rather, you may not take any more revenge than this, Max. What Jesus is making clear in his sermon is that God's real wish is for you neither to kill nor demand an equivalent revenge, but to limit yourself even further and not take revenge at all. He is not changing the commands. He is not reversing Old Testament law. Instead, he is agreeing with the true purpose behind it and is going beyond it. In this and many cases, you see, the regulation is not about the regulation. The regulation is not about the regulation. And such is often the case in covenant situations. But the Pharisees and quite a few modern Christians treat covenant as if it were contract. Sorry, folks. <laughs> in modern contract, the emphasis is on the products and the procedures and the payments. I make a contract with you when I want to be assured you will do X for which I'm willing to give up Y. Enacting the terms of the contract are what the contract is all about. In a contract, the regulation is about the regulation. It's merely a transactional arrangement, products, procedures, payments. But that's not what a covenant is primarily about. A covenant is primarily about real relationship, and it enshrines promises. In a covenant, we promise to give to each other in ways that are consistent with the relationship. And of course, there may be penalties if someone messes up the relationship badly. The difference is that with a contract, Grudging, surface, minimal compliance is completely acceptable. Whereas time and again, God rails against his people for going through the motions. Paying rent is a contract. There are minimum standards and those are fine. If you never give your landlord a single penny more, and if you always pay unhappily, that's fine in a contract. Don't try that in a marriage. <laughs> marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And minimum won't cut it. The Old Testament scriptures were never intended to be transactional, watertight contract with all possibilities covered. And you know that from the law itself. With do not covet in the Ten Commandments, it's clear it's not enforceable as law, nor is it about surface compliance only, but interested in the heart and your motivation. That's why the Old Testament says, give this animal as a sacrifice, but if you can't afford the animal, a bit of flour is good enough. Imagine some landlord saying that. David repents of his disobedience, but his real cry is not, make me more law compliant. 
but create in me a clean heart, O God. Or take the most difficult so-called command in the whole of the Old Testament. God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Did God want him to sacrifice Isaac? Apparently not. God had his own sacrifice in mind. God wanted Abraham's heart, not his knife. And to show Abraham that he was not less than the pagan gods, but more. It was never about products, procedures, or payments. It was always about relationship. When Jesus extends, do not kill, to I say, do not even hate, is he not doing the very same extending that the commandments themselves do? The Ten Commandments, which contain do not steal, to be sure, but also do not even covet. Jesus wasn't correcting the law. Jesus wasn't innovating on the spot. When he teaches the idea that the laws apply to the heart rather than the surface, he was following the deep pattern of scripture. Even when it appears to our minds sometimes like he's refuting the words. Torah law is about relationship. And that relationship is at, at last embodied completely in Jesus. Jesus insisted he had come to fulfill scripture, not abolish it. So what does it mean to fulfill Torah, to fulfill the law? We're more used to the idea of Jesus fulfilling prophecy. We understand fulfilling prophecy. Do you think the Jews or Christians value Isaiah 53 more highly? With his stripes we are healed. For us, that prophecy is fulfilled, right? We're no longer living day to day expectantly waiting for it to happen. It happened. It's fulfilled. Does that mean we throw it away or regard it as less scriptural or meaningless? No, we treasure fulfilled prophecy even if we don't expect it to happen in the future. Craig Blomberg taught me that we should see the fulfilled law as we see fulfilled prophecy. It isn't abolished. It's not less scripture, even if it no longer applies to us in quite the same way. We still have incredibly deep truth to mine in the principles behind it, in the values enshrined in it. Not that much differently to the writer of Psalm 119, we want to meditate on all of scripture. Not so that we can assure surface compliance, but so that it affects us deeply. And here's where Psalm 32 comes in again. Remember it from when I started? Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by a bit or bridle, or they will not come to you. Scripture is not a bit and a bridle that controls us step by step. It's not about procedure. It is to give you understanding so that you will come to him. It's not regulation. It's not technique. It's a pattern. It's a mindset. It's a lifestyle. It's a covenant. But there are two kinds of Christians who think it's a contract. 
some are like the Pharisees. They treat the Old Testament as a contract that still requires thoughtless, heartless surface compliance and direct application for today. But there's another way of treating it as a contract that also causes problems. I mean the idea that it's a contract that Jesus has completed and has therefore rendered no longer valid. It's a contract, but one no longer in force that we can ignore and no longer think about and be spiritual some other way. But Jesus believed it wasn't abolished even when fulfilled. He believed in scripture as a covenant. He was not a complier. He was not nearly as interested in application as he was in transformation. Like him, our lives and actions and words should be soaked in scripture. And we take on the values and ideas and hopefully some of the variety of expression and diversity that is obviously the hallmark of a book that so happily includes four different versions of its most important story. People come to London School of Theology to study scripture and sometimes they have the wrong idea of what they're doing. What they think is that they want me to guide them in separating out the relevant bits of scripture from the irrelevant bits or the parts we don't like. They're hoping we can sanitize, organize, and memorize these bits so that whatever problems they face in life, in someone else's life actually, usually, <laughs> they're able to pull out the right bit of scripture and bam, problem fixed. They think they're supposed to be Batman when I think God wants them to be Spider-Man. You know the difference, right? Batman is nobody special. He just works hard and he's rich so he's got stuff. If he needs to hit something at a distance, he throws a batarang. If he's confronted with poison gas, he's got a bat gas mask. And they're all in these compartments in his belt. And he spends his quiet times in the bat cave ahead of the gig, loading the belt up with the stuff that he thinks will be relevant for the coming day. And then when he assesses the situation, he pulls out the right tool and bam, problem fixed. Things are more complicated for Spider-Man. He didn't train hard, he didn't really want to be a crime fighter at all. Instead, he was minding his own business when he was bitten by a radioactive or genetically modified spider, depending on how old you are and what version of the multiverse you live in. <laughs> he got bitten and he got transformed. He started sticking to things and goop started shooting out of his wrist. These things didn't seem really all that relevant to crime fighting, but you know, he does pretty well. And he doesn't wear a belt. He doesn't hunt around for the relevant equipment. He uses his powers and his brains and he becomes the way to fix the problem. I think too many Christians try to work like Batman stuffing relevant verses into the compartments of the utility belts. 
But God doesn't use scripture that way. His word won't fit in your compartments. It bites you, right? It bites you and you change. It bites you and you change and you don't just share relevant verses, you become relevant. Do you become relevant because you are slavishly following a recipe you've memorized? No. Not because you're following a recipe, but because you are conforming yourself to a pattern you've internalized. And I think you know who that pattern is. I think you know who that pattern is yesterday, today, and forever. I think you know who that pattern is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That pattern is the self-sacrificing God, the God who gives up control, the God who asks questions, the God who shows up in the flesh, Jesus. Scripture was deep and central to Jesus. Be like that. In public, in private, but deep, not just surface. In covenant, not just in contract. Because unless Jesus is already with you, you won't meet him in philosophical ethics. Unless he's already with you, you won't meet him in academic theology. Unless he's already with you, you won't meet him in reason or tradition or experience or community. You meet him here, my friends. This is the source book for philosophers, or else they scheme in vain. This is the source book for theologians, or else they're just repeating their own ideas. We turn to this to correct our reason and traditions and to test our experience in communities. In these last days, he spoke through his son, and you'll find his son here, shot through its pages. One of the great folks I got to study with is the Roman Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft. And he once said, you know how you get grace? Kind of the same way that you get wet. You don't do it yourself with grace. God does it. But you have to go where God is, just as you have to go outside in the rain to get wet. Reading and praying the Bible is putting yourself in the way. Standing in God's great waterfall of living water. If you go out and stand in the street, you'll get hit by a lorry. If you stand in the Bible, you'll get kissed by God. Thank you for listening to the London School of Theology podcast. To find out more about LST and our courses, please visit our website. Thank you.